We warned you Russia's red lines are real and Australians rally to postal bank solution. Welcome to the Citizens Report for the 25th of February 2022. I'm Elisa Barwick. Joining me today is Citizens Party Research Director Robert Barwick. Welcome. Thanks, Elisa. And on today's show, we're going to be discussing the real story between the war front, something of which we've been warning for a long time, coming to reality. Uh, and then we'll discuss the latest developments in the campaign for an Australian postal bank, which are looking very good. And ordinarily, Lisa, we'd do the postal bank story first, but this Russian-Ukraine story is very serious. It is the big issue in the world at the moment. Mm. Now, don't forget to hit the like button if you like the show. Um, subscribe and hit the notifications bell to be alerted of upcoming and new, new content and share as widely as you can on social media. And with that said, straight into our first topic. Uh, we warned you Russia's red lines are real. And now we've been saying um, repeatedly like a broken record over you know, recent years uh, for quite a long time, but particularly in the last two to three years of Russia's warnings over things like the encroachment of NATO and so forth, and they've been coming increasingly serious and reached a crescendo point by the end of last year uh, where Russia made certain overtures to the West. This is what we're demanding in terms of assurances of our security, which were not taken seriously. If people had been watching our show and reading our alert service magazine, they would not be surprised by what's happening. It's not good what's happening, um, but... We made these warnings. We didn't not premised on the, the the Western narrative that Putin and Russia are evil, but premised on the fact that our side, the NATO alliance of which we're connected to through the United States, um, were pursuing policies that were always going to result in this point. Exactly. And I just want to state three things up front, and then what we're going to do is go through a bit of yeah. background material so that you see the full picture. Um, because it's something, again, that can't be understood from looking at black and white text uh, of the headlines in the mainstream media, that's for sure. Mm. Um, so firstly, this is not Russia invading Ukraine to take over Ukraine or return to the USSR or something, as the United States and the United Kingdom and the mainstream media have been telling you. This is not what that is. We'll tell you what it is in a moment. Secondly... Putin is not the new Hitler, <laughs> but there are actual Nazis in Ukraine, which we will also tell you about. And in Australia. Thirdly, this kind of confrontation we're seeing regarding Russia at the moment is ID format for what the same Anglo-American allies have planned regarding China. And that's why we've been warning about that. And if we don't stop what we're doing, it will end the same way. Exactly. So... You know, look at what's happening over the, there in the European theatre and take it seriously for our region. You don't want this on our doorstep. Now, let's go into a bit of the background because we need to look at the threat um, as, as Russia perceives it, uh, particularly from the standpoint in, of the civil war that's been occurring in Ukraine for several years now, starting in 2014. Um, so the threat building against Russia... Uh, reached a high point following 
the so-called Euromaidan coup, which went from November 2013 to February 2014. Uh, and that was where the elected president, Viktor Yanukovych, was removed. The driving force of the coup was not, as it was portrayed in the media, the people uh, pushing for a free trade agreement with the European Union, which Yanukovych had opposed in the end. It was actually paramilitary groups with Nazi ideologies who believe that Russia must be destroyed and that eternal war is necessary um, to do so. And those groups and the coup was backed by the United States, by the United Kingdom. It was orchestrated by Obama's Assistant Secretary of State, Victoria Nuland. People might remember at the time after the coup, a famous uh, leaked phone call mm. with the audio and everything where she was talking to um, the US ambassador for Ukraine, where they were hand-picking the new Prime Minister to be installed. Yep. So regime change, coup, colour revolution type operations will go to woe. So if you're the government of Russia that has told the United States and NATO that you will not tolerate NATO coming up to its borders, and you see America run a coup and handpick the government on your neighbour, Ukraine, you know what it is. Dumb people in Western countries may not know, but you know what it is. And Lisa, just to make one other comment, there was a popular, while there was a popular element to the Euromaidan protest, there, there certainly was, those protests were just protests until snipers shot dead 100 people in that square and our side the also leaked phone calls revealed that they knew that those snipers had come from the the um, the Banderite Nazi side mm -hmm. and they had shot both sides of yep. the protests equally and that's what sent it violent that's what led to the up to the violence that saw the president flee and they were able to take over mm. and the other thing you know the Russians were very very intensely aware of during this period watching this coup take place is that it brought forward these neo-Nazi networks, some of them into the ranks of the government. Uh, and from that point, after the coup period, the Russian language was no longer taught in schools or used in the court systems, universities, governments. Russian language could no longer be broadcast on TV. Um, people who, had, who felt a particular affiliation, particularly in the east of the country, with Russia and would honour national days of Russia and so forth were targeted and attacked violently, including people we personally know. Um, this was the racist and Nazi ideology coming forward of these networks we'll talk a bit more about later. I have to chip in here. The irony of this week is that when it became clear that the Russians were about to move, the president of Ukraine, Ukraine Zelensky, did a public broadcast in Russian. He broke Ukraine's own laws <laughs> to appeal to the Russians not to do it, but by then it was too late. And, you know, this kind of situation, this Russophobia, um, it is what triggered the referendum in Crimea and the secession of Crimea. I mean, the, the ideology of these Nazi groups is that a nation, and this is a quote, a nation is a biological species and only one ethnicity can inhabit the nation. Mm. So we will wage war to protect that. Um, and at the same time as Crimea um, decided to rejoin the Russian Federation in March 2014, uh, an uprising against the puppet government that had been installed by the West in Ukraine began 
and we'll put up a map of these regions you've been hearing about on the news in the most far eastern region of Ukraine, the Luhansk and Donetsk republics. So those two areas resisted this push and said, we don't recognise this coup-installed government. Yep. Um, so they didn't go as far as Crimea, but the Minsk agreements came in at that time to uh, bring a ceasefire into effect because you had a, a civil war that had erupted. Um, and what was recognised in the Minsk agreement, which was later re revised in 2015 with Minsk II, was the uh, enhanced autonomy of these two democratic republics. But the, in the event the Ukrainian Republic has refused to implement uh, that autonomy and the government has stalled on implementing um, that autonomy, which of course was recognised this week by Russia, recognised the independence of these two republics uh, before it moved in. So, and and th be clear, this is what experts know is the actual reality on the ground, right? So these Russian speakers in these republics know that there's an agreement called Minsk where they're supposed to have autonomy. Autonomy from what? Autonomy from a government that hates them, filled with Ukrainians who have this ideology that hates Russia, hates Russian speakers, don't want them to speak their language, etc., actually wants to wipe them off the face of the yeah. earth. So for, for Ukraine to retain its territorial integrity, that's what the Minsk agreements were central to that. And everybody knows, every expert knows, that with America's backing and Britain's backing, and Britain especially, loves love stirring this stuff up, the Ukrainians refused to admit to implement the agreement that would have secured peace. Exactly. And so if you, if you, there, these agreements aren't made for no reason. If you don't admit to abide by them, there's consequences. But the bigger issue for Russia was seeing their closest neighbour, where they have a lot of people that still identify as Russian, uh, being taken over by the US slash NATO faction. Yep. And we'll put up a map here to show uh, between 1949 and 2017 the increasing encroachment of NATO to rush right up to Russia's borders, um, which is something that when the Soviet Union broke up, it was promised would not happen. Now, Elisa, that promise was not was real, but it wasn't enshrined in writing. And the United States has denied, not overtly denied it, but essentially denied it or, or, or to the point of ignoring it. This week, the Germans, officials in Germany testified, no, no, we were there. The, the, the guarantee of no NATO expansion was real. And when you hear the discussion in, in these days about Russia breaching international law, understand that, yes, Russia has technically invaded a sovereign country. That is a technical breach of the UN Charter international law. But that follows 30, 30 years of breaches of international law mm -hmm. in Russia's face. And whilst Ukraine is not technically a member of NATO, I'm about to go through a bit of a timeline that will show you that and in Putin's words this week when he announced Russian troops going into Ukraine, uh, effectively is a NATO member in effect. Um, so I want to go through some of the escalation that built up just yep. last year, over the course of last year, which led to... Which the, explains why this is happening now. And it led to the point in on December 15th last year where the Russians delivered draft treaties to both the US and NATO saying, all right... This has gone too far. We now want it in writing that you will not advance NATO any further. Mm. 
So in February 2021, um, this is just a, a starting point, <clears throat> um, somewhat you know random, but it occurred at this point that around the anniversary of uh, Crimea gaining its independence, going to Russia, going, going back to Russia, going back to Russia, Biden announced at that anniversary. He said, "On this somber anniversary, we reaffirm a simple truth: Crimea is Ukraine." And of course, what that says to the Russians is. You know, we want it. We're going to come to get yeah, it back. We're, we're going to help Ukraine get it back. And by this time, of course, the lady we talked about earlier, Victoria Nuland, who had orchestrated the coup in Ukraine, was now back because, of course, um, you know, Trump she's hadn't, a Democrat. Trump hadn't um, done anything. He tried to have alliances or work more closely with Russia, but it was the sabotaged. most positive side of the Trump administration was him trying to yeah. come to an, an understanding with Russia. But he did. Uh, withdraw from various uh, weapon um, uh, treaties, yep. arms treaties and so forth as well, which was crucial. But anyway, Victoria Newland was back as Under Secretary of State for Political Affairs. So you had these elements working in the background behind Biden. By March, the Pentagon had announced a new military aid package, continued from the Trump administration, but new funding to go to military aid for Ukraine. Large shipments of heavy equipment were being moved by the... Uh, Ukrainian military to the Donbass region where these two independent republics are. By the end of March, Russia was beginning to step up troop movements at the border in response to that. There was also a very intensive and building roster of NATO exercises. In May, a plot was uncovered to overthrow the Belarusian president, which is a key neighbour uh, of Russia and sits above Ukraine. Yep. Uh, we had an article uh, in the Australian Alert Service, and we'll make these articles available in the info box below, called Russia's Red Lines Don't Dismiss as Bluff or Bluster, which summarised how Russia was seeing all these actions. Putin said at that time, those behind provocations that threaten the core interests of our security will regret what they have done in a way they have not regretted anything for a long time. But it was in, he said this in a way that was obvious that Russia was feeling cornered. They weren't, you know, trying to expand or revive a new USSR or something. You know, they were being encroached upon. In regarding negotiations with the United States, um, the Foreign Minister Lavrov made it very clear that they did not feel they were being taken seriously. He said that at least during the Cold War there was mutual respect. He said, I believe this is lacking now. And Alyssa, that's why we had that headline, Russia's red lines don't dismiss as bluff or bluster, because we can tell the thinking that's prevailing in Washington and London, etc., mm -hmm. that they don't take these things seriously, right? And so that's they didn't, and keep going, going well, with the timeline that yep. brings us to where we are. By, between July and October of, that, of last year, there were a series of provocations in the Black Sea, which we also wrote about in the Australian Alert Service. There was a British naval ship. There were two American strategic bombers and tanker aircraft uh, buzzed by Rush, the Russians. There were American warships passing through the Black Sea. These were in cases where they didn't need to be there. Um, and then uh, the US Secretary of Defence, Lloyd Austin, toured the Black Sea region, calling it a critical area to the security of NATO's eastern flank. He pushed to increase the NATO presence. In Georgia, there was an agreement signed for US-led military training. Um, there were uh, events in Ukraine, in, Euro in Romania, I should say, uh, was a new US defence installation um, that was announced. Then in November, the NATO defence ministers' conference signed up on, 
signed off on a new concept for deterrence of defence of the Euro-Atlantic area that won't be made official until the coming NATO summit in June in Madrid. Um, but it effectively declared, you know, Russia the greatest threat and including uh, lumped China and Russia in together as a global threat, which is, you know, very, very relevant to what we'll talk about later. Then um, at this time, the commander in chief of the Ukrainian Armed Forces named a fellow by the name of Dmitro Yarosh as his key advisor. This guy was a key organiser of the 2014 coup and a follower of the Ukrainian fascists. That's, that's right. The, the commander in chief of the Ukrainian Armed Forces is advised by a neo-Nazi, an actual neo-Nazi who promotes the, the, the Nazi fascist uh, record of Ukraine in World War II. Uh, now, there were reports as well at the time that groups tied to um, one of these battalions, which is a neo-Nazi linked um, yep. battalion called the Azov Battalion. And again, we've written all this up where you can read all of the detail on this, um, that this battalion was receiving instructions from NATO personnel at the Ukrainian military's National Academy of Ground Forces. Actually, we, we might put below a link to a a Canadian television news report from 2018 where it was a little bit of a scandal in Canada because the Canadian military was caught collaborating with this same Azov battalion that the Canadian media noted at the time, hang on, these guys are Nazis. Why are we having these meetings with them? Mm. Right. So just so people know that this Nazi element is real and we'll talk about it more as well. Um, now, so then that brings us to the end of the year where in, as I mentioned before, in December... Um, two Russian leaders communicated their concerns regarding the NATO build-up and a, um, two draft treaties were handed to US State Department and to NATO to formalise security guarantees for Russia. And, um, you know, the response that they got back, Russia has not been satisfied with. It hasn't been taken seriously. Well, that was the point. It's not that Russia's not satisfied with it. They were not taken seriously. Russia has said, this is what you've done all year. This is what you've done for 30 years. You've escalated this year. Here is what we demand if there's going to be a peaceful resolution of this. Mm -hmm. And they were effectively said just the, the, the key elements were ignored. America said they wouldn't uh, engage on them. Um, yeah, the US instead proceeded and by um, 25th of January had announced already in a US press briefing that they were planning new sanctions uh, harder than ever before on Russia to hit Putin's strategic ambitions to industrialise his economy and to force an atrophying of Russia's productive capacity. And that's an important point that we'll come back to later because um, the growth of Russia and China both as major economies and the collaboration between the two is seen as a major threat. Also in January, um, following on um, the effort for a coup in Belarus. Belarus. Um, in January, there were also signs of a colour revolution um, picked up in Kazakhstan, which was fortunately diffused. So these are all the things going on on the borders of Russia. And among, and among Russia's main allies, and you have Belarus, to, Kazakhstan, yeah, etc. You have to think about what if this were happening to the United States, yeah. you know, in Mexico or something like that. Um, now, by February... There was a build-up of Ukrainian army forces at the contact line, which is the border with the Don, uh, the two independent where, republics. Um, so where they, where they, where, where the uh, the Donbass forces 
the, the Russian-speaking forces are up against the Ukrainian forces. On the 17th of February, at the NATO Defence Minister's meeting, the head of uh, NATO, Stoltenberg, affirmed NATO still had an open door for Ukraine to join in the future. On the 19th of February, at the Munich Security Forum, the President of Ukraine, Zelensky, uh, implied that Ukraine would be prepared to go nuclear and secure a nuclear capability if it didn't receive the security guarantees from NATO that it wanted. And, and Elise said, look, Zelensky is a comedian who, yeah. has, who through the quirk of Russian, of Ukrainian political chaos, has become president. He is not a deep strategic thinker. He's not very well qualified for this uh, situation at all. And so he has been more than willing to recklessly beg you, for Ukraine to be able to join NATO. Mm. And, and because the NATO side knows that's the Cassus Ballot, they know that's the red line, they know that's, that, will, that will be the trigger for war, they've been stringing him along but not committing. And so he said, well, if you're not going to let us join NATO, give us nuclear weapons. And if talk about an escalation to insanity, right? And the Russians are watching this and thinking, what? We, we, you, this is our security we're talking about. Um, you guys are getting crazier and crazier. Mm. And then just a couple of days later, at an extraordinary session broadcast live of the Russian Security Council session, uh, Putin discussed the fact that if Ukraine joins NATO and wants to take back Crimea, then under Article 5 of NATO, all NATO allies will be forced by law, by treaty, to come in and help Ukraine. And then you've got World War III. Yep. Um, so this was the point then at which Russia recognised the Donetsk and Luhansk republics. And I want to now quote from what Putin said in his 21st February speech, so um, not when he um, sent the troops in, but a couple of days earlier at the yeah. beginning of this week. And it, this explains why Russia's mission going in is not about taking over Ukraine. It's about defusing this NATO risk. It's why they refer to it as a demilitarisation mission. Uh, so he said in this speech, in March 2021, a new military strategy was adopted in Ukraine. This document is almost entirely dedicated to confrontation with Russia. It stipulates the organisation of terrorist underground movements in Russia's Crimea and in Donbass. It, he cites Kiev strategists that were talking about potential war, quote, with foreign military support in the geopolitical confrontation with the Russian Federation. Uh, he then talked about the fact that Ukraine intends to acquire nuclear weapons as a great threat. And he said, over the past few years, military contingents of NATO countries have been almost constantly present on Ukrainian territory under the pretext of exercises. The Ukrainian troop control system has already been integrated into NATO. This means that NATO headquarters can issue direct commands to the Ukrainian armed forces, even to their separate units and squads. He talked about the upgrades of a network of airfields for quick army transfers uh, and other, a lot of other details uh, and how the US built up a maritime operations centre at Ochakov on the Black Sea to support NATO warships. Uh, he said Ukraine is home to NATO training missions which are in fact foreign military bases. And to conclude, he said... The information we have gives us good reason to believe that Ukraine's accession to NATO and the subsequent deployment of NATO facilities has already been decided and is only a matter of time. We clearly understand that given this scenario, the level of military threats to Russia will increase dramatically. So that is the level of seriousness 
that we're at. Yeah, the, what, what, what Putin has said is you, you know, the West knows that Ukraine is our red line. You, we will never allow Ukraine to join NATO and because um, you, you've breached your promise to us anyway about the expansion of NATO. And, but although Ukraine isn't officially part of NATO, for all intents and purposes, it is entirely integrated into NATO. The risk, the, the threat is right here on our doorstep. This is a threat to our, the, what, what, how we define our security. And it's very important that people think this through from the standpoint of what if the shoe was on the other foot? And, that for, and the Australia doesn't, it's hard for Australia to relate because we're an island. Mm. But the United States also has borders with other countries. And the equivalent would be China setting up bases all over Mexico or Russia setting up bases all over Canada, right? Filled with people who hate the United States. And China, the Chinese ones filled with people who hate the United States. Oh. The United States will not tolerate, the United, tolerate that. It, the United States has a, what, it, it, it reserves its right to a sphere of influence. Mm -hmm. It says, no, this is our part of the world, stay out. But it will not respect Russia doing the same thing over there. But even more importantly, which is the true backdrop for this whole story, um, at the point of the breakdown of the Soviet Union, the US effectively declared that it was the unilateral power yep. and it couldn't allow the rise again of a power like the USSR. It could be Russia, it could be China. Um, that was called the Wolfowitz Doctrine. Doctrine. We've discussed it many times on the show before. Um, and what you see happening in the world today is the financial control of the Anglo-Americans is breaking down. You have China becoming um, the most, the greatest economic power and capacity in the world. You had China and Russia that signed an agreement on the sidelines of the Beijing Olympics saying we will cooperate um, in effect to fashion mm. a new economic framework. And we've got many hundreds of nations that are with us on this, smaller nations that are oriented to whether it be the Belt and Road or other projects and perspectives. And I want to... Actually, um, sorry, I have to put butt in. When our Prime Minister and politicians and the, the US government and the British government, etc., when they make their, when they pontificate their sanctimonious pronouncements about what's happening, they always say, the world condemns. If you ever see a map of this so-called the world, it, you have, the majority of the world is not condemning it. Mm -hmm. This is Australia, the United States and Europe. And unfortunately, well, don't cast judgment, fortunately or unfortunately, that is not representative of the world anymore. And this, this, this is an example of how much power the United States has actually lost. And I want to uh, play a brief excerpt from a presentation a few days ago from a friend and collaborator of ours who's the head of a political party in Ukraine and has been sidelined as a political force with every effort by the current and previous governments since the coup. Uh, Natalia Vitrenko. Uh, this is a presentation to a, a Schiller Institute conference. A lot of our analysis, a lot of our insights into what's happened in Ukraine for the last uh, couple of decades has come via mm. Natalia, who lives there yeah. and is a politician. So she's a local. She's Ukrainian, and she gives just listen to her words because she gives a perspective of this top-down view that we've just presented, yep. and also why you know all Ukrainians are not. Um, anti-Russian or something, yeah. certainly not. Um, and uh, we'll talk a bit more afterwards. It is very important 
that our conference is taking place in a period of heightened confrontation between two blocks of leading countries in the world. This is the NATO countries led by the USA and the other block which is taking shape before our very eyes is Russia and China whose joint declaration of February 4th of this year proclaimed their intention to be together on all issues. This is extremely important because mankind is on the brink of World War III and the knife's edge of that confrontation is my country, Ukraine. Essentially, this is what we warned about. Let me remind you about my intervention at the European Parliament on February 26, 2014. That was during the tour by representatives of our party, which I believe was very important for the international community when we visited Germany, France, and Italy. Our friends from the Schiller Institute helped us organize that trip. And at that time, I said at my press conference that the coup d'etat in Ukraine in 2014 had brought to power Nazis and Russophobes, and that this would give rise to extremely grave problems, not only for Ukraine and not only for the Eurasian continent, but also for the entire world. And indeed, from 2014 on, the USA started strongly sponsoring Ukraine and preparing a confrontation with Russia. What other interpretation can there be of the fact that since then, $2,700,000,000 of lethal weaponry has been allocated? What other interpretation can there be of orienting the government of Ukraine not towards a peaceful solution of the crisis and towards finding ways through diplomacy to resolve this bloody conflict in southeastern Ukraine and the Donbass, but rather constantly instigating them towards war with Russia. Who is in igniting the bonfire of war inside Ukraine and from the outside? Inside Ukraine, it's the Nazis first and foremost. All these organizations that have rebo been reborn and burgeoned, parties, movements, organizations, listing, thirsting for blood. They have an ideology called Ukrainian Integral Nationalism. This ideology was created by Dantsov and Siborsky in the early 20th century, then implemented by Bandera and Shukhevich. This is an ideology of enmity between our peoples an ideology of war, misanthropic war. This ideology of a Nazified Ukraine has infected a section of the population of our country. And worst of all, this ideology has become the official ideology of the Ukrainian government, just as we warned. And as a result, people with Russian culture, Members of ethnic minorities have become second-class people. Look at me. I am ethnically Ukrainian, but my native language is Russian, and I don't conceive of myself outside of Russian 
civilization. But all broadcasting by Russian TV channels and all broadcasting of programs in the Russian language has been banned in Ukraine. The courts, government agencies, schools and universities work only in Ukrainian. And we have, and we have the constant fanning of the psychosis that the Muscovites, pejorative term, must be destroyed. This is said openly on television. That's inside Ukraine. So now, and it's interesting because when Zelensky, when President Zelensky was elected in 2019, it was on a platform for reconciliation and economic revival. And Natalia Vitrenko had actually offered to put her ready-to-go economic program, which is mm. based on the same ideas as ours and our international association um, with, you know, credit for development and so forth. Um, she proffered that and said, I can assist you. Uh, and because she's been a member of parliament in the past, um, yeah. she's a prominent person, and that was refused because by that time the, the Nazi elements were so deeply embedded, which she was just talking at, about at the end of that video there, um, that Zelensky was afraid to oppose them. They'd been given free reign. It had been set up from the point of the coup. And the most perverse part of it, that particular relationship is um, Zelensky, Elisa, is Jewish. He's a, he's a Jewish comedian but he is captured by actual Nazis. Um, the fact that a Jewish comedian can get elected means, you know, Ukraine as a nation is not Nazi, but people that we backed, we gave them the strength, these Nazi elements, to become, to, to have the power they have now. And in fact, um, there was a 2013 Schiller Institute conference that people from this office attended in Germany, where, where this is before the coup, where Natalia warned then she gave a presentation. She showed the summer camps where young Ukrainians were being drilled by paramilitary neo-Nazis in anticipation of a coup. And it was all backed by the United States. Victoria Newland bragged later in um, January 2014 in Washington that $5 billion had been invested into this um, exercise. Yep. And the thing is, this, the, the, the Western media tried to poo-poo this neo-Nazi thing, just like the, just like they try to poo-poo the, um, the 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 reality that the Uyghur problem in China that China had to deal with was an actual terrorist problem. No, no, that's a real problem, and this was a real problem. Um, the the this Nazi who's now the commander in chief of the, um, the or the advisor to the commander in chief of the Iranian forces, Yarosh, he gave a blood-curdling battle cry, saying, "We're going to bring back Bandera." Bandera is going to reign again. And Bandera was the World War II figure who was a leader of the fascists in, in Ukraine who the, they try and whitewash his role because he actively worked with the Nazis. He, the Banderaites participated in the massacre of Jews. But then, of course, he was a prickly character. And later on, he fell out with the Nazis, but only, only for um, you know, whatever local political reasons, right? He is a fascist, an actual fascist. And he founded an organisation called the Organisation of Ukrainian Nationalists. And that exists to this day and last week I want to play a little clip where last week in Parliament our opposition leader Anthony Albanese to take the initiative off Scott Morrison who was trying to jump up and down about national security he tried to he make a bipartisan speech on Ukraine and he announced that he had had a meeting that day with an Australian named Stefan Romanu so watch the clip and I'll describe this person for you 
Last Friday, I met with the chairman of the Australian Federation of Ukrainian Organisations, Stefan Romanyu, and other Ukrainian community leaders in Melbourne. And I indicated to them Labor's clear position of solidarity with the people of the Ukraine. So that person, Stefan Romanyu, who's an Australian, is also the chairman of this organisation, Organisation of Ukrainian Nationalists. He's the global chairman of it, but this organisation has two factions now. Organisation of OUNM and OUNB. And he's the chairman of OUNB, and B stands for Bandera. Now, last, as, as you know, last year, our party um, organised a, 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 a Senate inquiry into Australia Post and brought the government to its knees on this, on this question of what they did to Christine Holgate. And because we did it and I led it and I was there for the Senate inquiry, I was attacked in Parliament as an anti-Semite just for getting a banking inquiry going, right? These are Nazis, real Nazis, walking the corridors of the Australian Parliament, but it's all ignored because there is no principle when a commitment to truth when it comes to this stuff, right? It is strategic shenanigans all the way. And people have to know you're being lied to. So last bit of advice on this from me, Elisa. Um, when there's a, you should always be skeptical of the mainstream media under any circumstances. When there's a war on, never believe a word that comes out of the mainstream media, ever. Yep. <laughs> And far from being, quote-unquote, in lockstep with our Anglo-American allies on this, Australia needs to be instructing them and ordering them to do some real diplomacy here unless they want World War Nuclear, World War III. Um, so we'll stop there. Go below for links to more information. Now, on our second topic, briefly, yeah, Australians brief. <laughs> rally to Postal Bank solution. We just want to mention a few highlights of the campaign for the Postal Bank, which started with an excellent new article by um, a prominent journalist who's gone independent at the Regional as her new uh, publication, Dale Webster. Regional banking inquiry reopens political divide. And what she's done is she's gone through uh, in various electorates, the shutdown of the banks. This is really powerful ammunition. People should get a hold of this alert service or go to the regional website, get this information, and she's trying to collect further information. So we're actually encouraging all of our viewers to get in contact with us and let us know what yeah, banks very, have closed in your area. Very important. Um, Dale Webster describes in her articles just how much work is involved in compiling the inaccurate figure figures of, of how many bank branches have been shut around the country. And it's very, very difficult. APRA is supposed to have these figures, and they don't. So she has to piece it all together. Um, but everybody knows this is happening on a massive scale. So what we're appealing for you to do, if you've had an experience in your area, email the Citizens Party and let us know, and we'll pass that information on, because she's got an excellent database here, and she can compile that and produce an actually accurate figure. So let us know about the bank branches that are shut in your area, and even let us know about the ATMs, what's mm. happening with the ATMs what in your area. What have you got left in your town exactly. in terms of banks and ATMs and cash access? No, yeah, very, very important. What have, what have you actually got left? Because sometimes the, the APRA's figures even cover up the yep. real name. They'll, they'll turn an elder's stock, fi stock feed place <laughs> in, regarded as a bank. Right. Um, yeah. So this sort of this sort of problem. So yeah. get to it. I yeah. want to mention one thing from her article, and that is the worst two electorates in the whole country: are the Victorian seat of Mallee and Grey in South Australia. 
Now, she interviewed uh, Dr. Anne Webster, the MP for Mali, about it. And um, Dr. Webster pointed to the work of the government's task force on regional banking. Um, she said it's looking for solutions, and one of the solutions, imperfect though it is, is for Australia Post to be providing some of those banking services. Now, um, Dale Webster asked her to clarify, um, and Dale said, Dr. Webster clarified that this uh, option did not mean Australia Post would become a bank, which some of the minor parties are pushing for, <laughs> i.e. us. Um, so she, that's her position. But then I want to cite a New South Wales State Member of Parliament, Helen Dalton, who also intersected um, Dale's uh, analysis. She's from the Shooters and Fishers Party. She said it is up to government to properly regulate banks, this is in Parliament, to force them to look after rural New South Wales. They could easily do that, but they have chosen not to. In the early 70s, regional banking was thriving. Banks were actually opening new branches in small towns. There was a time when we had the Commonwealth Bank, a government-owned operation, and we also had state government banks. The government kept the private banks honest, but then the government decided to privatise the Commonwealth Bank and the state government sold off its banks too. Private banks are now closing their doors all over regional Australia. There are now 573 towns that have no bank at all. Um, then she degra degraded the um, Regional Banking Task Force a bit. She said, she continued to say, if the National Party were really serious about saving regional banks, it would implement the recommendations of countless previous inquiries. A 2004 inquiry recommended the government impose a community service obligation on banks. The government could also look at bringing back public banking options. Our leaders could address this crisis in many ways. The Liberal Party and the Labor Party have threatened to bring the banks into line, but they have never followed through. This federal election is our big chance. Every rural MP and candidate should be asked what they will do to stop the mass closure of banks in our small towns. Banks will not regulate themselves. It is time for the government to step in and save our small towns. Banks will not regulate themselves. And there was coverage in the Narrabri Courier, which we'll put up on the screen, of the same issue, picking up on Helen Dalton's comments. Everell Compton, who's an inf infrastructure guru, has uh, put forward the proposal. We'll put that up on the screen. He's, he's, a, great, he's, he's a great Australian, Ed, Ed, Everell Compton, a, a senior citizen. He's fought for infrastructure projects his whole life, and he tweeted his endorsement of the bank. And then um, the per capita think tank chimed in because they did an excellent report in 2020 on a postal bank. And they chimed in and resp responded to uh, Everald's tweet and say, you mean like this? Mm. And, um, and then, of course, we replied, say, look, we've got the legislation ready to go. Yep. So I think that's all we've got time for, unless you've got any passing yeah, comments. I, I do want to say, look, if, if you've got the time, click on the video tab on our YouTube page here and scroll down to 2013 and 2014 and see the evidence of us talking intensely about this Russia issue, right? We have been all over it for a long, long time. Um, and it wasn't just us. We were at, in those years. We were working very closely with um, the late Malcolm Fraser, Elisa. Right? Yeah. There's lots of senior people around the world who understand that whatever you cannot look at the events today, this week in Russia, and say that's the reality. No, no. You have to look at it as the end of a continuum, and we are the guilty party for all that continuum up until today. So take that seriously. And um, the, this final subject. The reason we talk about that is th there are economic solutions and we talk about the Postal Bank as a domestic economic solution, um, Lisa, but that approach can be applied internationally as well. That's how you avoid wars. We should be completely looking the other way and saying instead of, instead of thinking, oh, I don't want another country to be a rival to me, etc., 
throw that old thinking out and, and change the whole thing and say, how can we cooperate on economic development that can lift the living standards of all, right, and um, uh, get away from this, this uh, thinking that ends in wars of disaster? Mm, absolutely. So contact us for more information. Share this as widely as you can. Thanks, Robbie. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks for tuning in and see you next week. Authorised by Robert Bowick, Citizens Party, Melbourne.